Hello there, and welcome to episode 12 of The Game Pit. This is another one of our Picking Over the Bones episodes. Today we are going to be discussing Discworld Ankh Morpork, Arctic Scavengers, and we're also going to be doing a Picking Over the Bones and a bit of a comparison between Clash of Cultures and Sid Meier's Civilization from Fantasy Flight Games. You can catch all of our episodes on 2d6.org along with a whole host of other gaming goodness. A game I wanted to talk about this week is Arctic Scavengers, which is by designer Robert K. Gabbard, who this is pretty much his only design. It's come out from Rio Grande games, mostly. It was initially published in 2009. It was, whatever the complications were, it was due a reprint. It was supposed to be available at the end of 2012, but I think it actually came out this year, 2013. That's when I've been able to get hold of a copy anyway. It's a deck-building game for two to five players. An interesting thing about it is that it's mooted as being only the second-ever deck-building game to come out after the Granddaddy Dominion. But yet, obviously, it's been delayed coming to the market from there. So it's one of the innovators, but it feels like it should be a, a new game. It's playing time suggested is 45 minutes. I'm going to say with two players, you'll probably get it done within 45 minutes. The more players you have, as with a lot of games, it's going to take a little bit longer. So how's it themed? So this one suggests at the end of the current century, we're going to have a cataclysmic climatic event. And there's going to be an ice age that wipes out 90% of the world's population and the rest of the population are going to be fighting for survival and you're going to represent someone who's pretty much the head of a gang who is going to be trying to live on the margins of what's left of society you're going to be scrambling around you're going to be trying to procure food and medication in order to grow your tribe if you like you're going to be uh, fighting with the other players for limited resources available and that's the whole theme of the game is this attempt to build up your gang and the victory points at the end are going to be scored in terms of population so most of the cards that you get during the game, certainly at least the people cards anyway, are going to have a population value on them, generally between 1 and 5. And at the end of the game, everyone adds up all the population in their deck and whoever's got the highest is going to win. So how do you play Arctic Scavengers? Well, everyone starts kind of standard deck building stuff. You start with 10 cards. The cards are going to be a mixture of people and tools. And that's going to be something to come back to because pretty much every action you have, you can send one or more people to do and then you can use tools in order to improve it. There's other kind of working on that theme, but that's mostly what it's, what it's all about. And on your turn, you're going to draw five cards. Now, at the beginning of each turn, after the first two, there's going to be a special peak going on, but I'll come back to that in a second because that corresponds to the last thing you do during the turn. Then, in turn order, everyone's going to get a chance to use the five cards at their hand and use them to do some actions. Now, the main actions in the game are... Uh, some cards let you draw more cards, so basically, maybe they're not that useful, but they let you at least replace that card with one or two other from your deck to come into your hand to use. There's something called digging. Now, as with all these actions, each card that you use to do a particular action has to have it on there, so only certain cards are going to let you dig. And for each of these four main actions, you can only do them once per turn. So if, you cho if I choose to dig now using a set number of cards, I cannot choose later on in my turn to dig again using different cards. So... When I dig, what I'm going to do is I'm going to add up the dig total of the people I've sent there, plus any tools they have with them, take some cards out of what's called a junkyard pile, 
And in that junkyard pile, there's going to be some useful stuff. There's going to be some kind of medication, which is one of the currencies in the game, or some tools which are going to help me be more effective during the game. And depending on how good the cards are I've sent to dig, I'm going to be able to take a certain number of cards from the top, keep one, and put the rest back under the bottom. There's hunt, and that's how you're going to be able to secure yourself some food. So some of your cards let you go out hunting, you have a certain value, and that's how much food you get back from that particular hunt. And the last main action you have, when, and one of the main values you have on these cards, is a fight value. Now, you don't fight at this time, but what you do is you put cards aside in order to fight in the last phase. The one I mentioned earlier to do with the peaking, it's called the skirmish phase. So we're going to talk about that again in a second. But out of your five cards, you don't necessarily use them all now. Some you might put one side and say, they're for the fight, and, and we'll talk about that in one sec. The other things you can do are... You can hire cards. Now, there's a set of cards in the middle of the board, and you're going to be able to hire these, and they're all people, they're all mercenaries, and they come at different costs. The costs are always in a combination of food and medication. They're going to offer you varying degrees of use. So, for example, you might have things like a brawler. Now, a brawler is okay at digging, but mostly they're there for fighting. They're only worth one victory point at the end of the game. But if you spend two food now from going on your hunt, you can buy one of those. So not great for the end, but it's going to help you fight. Or there's a useful one called group leaders. Now, group leaders are quite expensive. They have to cost you two medication and two food. But what they do is they can join anyone else in any other action and add two to their value. So they're very flexible. And also, they're worth two people at the end of the game. There's stuff like Scout, which will let you draw lots of cards. There's Saboteur, which is... One of the cards which leads to player interaction in the game because saboteurs can stop someone else from using a very useful tool. So, for example, there's the ability to get things like grenades, which are very useful in, a, in the fight, in the skirmish phase. However, if someone's got a saboteur, they can use it to prevent your grenade from going off. There's sniper teams, which can prevent other people's characters from taking an action. So if you've got a sniper team in your hand, someone plays a particularly powerful character, you can play your sniper team and say, no, I'm taking them out of the game, just for this turn, though. So you're going to do this. You're going to be trying to hire mercenaries to improve your deck. You're going to be digging in the junkyard to get some useful stuff, to get some medication, to be able to hire more mercenaries, and so on and so on. Everyone takes a turn doing that. And then the last phase of each round is called the skirmish. And this is when everyone turns over those cards they've put to one side and they add together their fight value. And whoever's got the highest fight value amongst the players is going to get to draw the top card from the contested deck, it's called. Now, the contested deck is a deck of 12 cards which have particularly powerful cards in there. At the beginning of each round, whoever's the first player is going to get what's called a peak, and they're going to be able to look at the top card. And the idea being then they can decide how much it's worth going for a fight for, and then everyone else can try and judge off their reaction how good the card is. Now, what kind of cards are you going to get in there? You're going to get, well, the aforementioned grenades. Now, grenades are very powerful in upcoming skirmishes. So if you get them, you're likely to win more skirmishes later on. There's the tribe family, for example. Now, they're not much used by themselves, but these tribe families are worth three, four, or even five points, which is quite a powerful thing in this game because victory scores maybe 30 or 40 points. You've got field crews, which are flexible and worth lots of points, or sled teams, which are, will let you draw lots of cards. So they're generally all useful, some slightly more useful than others, depending upon how you think you're going to want to build your deck up. That's the base game. You do two rounds without a skirmish, then you do 12 more rounds over the contested resources, and then at the end of that 14th round, everyone adds up all the people in their tribe, highest tribe member wins. Now, that's a very basic overview, and that's a very basic deck building game. If the game had just come like that in the box, I'm not sure really how happy I'd have been. But thankfully, built into the box, there's also four expansion modules which you can use, which add a little bit more choice, which I'll just go over really quickly. Now, 
they bring in, for example, um, gangs. Now, there's three gangs that are watching the game, and they're going to reward the people who have gone the most in their direction by joining them and adding five points. So, for example, the basic one would be the farmers. Now, they're a bunch of, of medicine wielders, farm, uh, pharmacists, if you like, and whoever's got the most medication in their whole deck is going to get them join them and score five extra points. Or the gearheads, now, they're after tools. Now, tools, I said, they come from the contested thing or, or the junkyard, and whoever's got the most tools, they're going to join them for five extra points. So they give you an idea in which way to, to build. So slightly more strategic options, as you can see. Then, talking of building, there's another module that lets you Add in buildings. Now, buildings, you're going to play some cards and eventually you're going to be able to build them. And then what that actually do is set certain types of cards aside. So if you think you're not looking too strong this turn, they let you store them and then bring them back out during another turn. So you can have a particularly powerful dig or, or skirmish on a later turn, depending on what building you've chosen to build. And there's also a gang linked to those buildings. These the very interesting tribal leaders. Now, I really like this one. There's 10 different tribal leaders that give you various powers. And at the beginning of the game, you draw two and you choose one to keep. They really feel like they add something. They feel like you're putting your own sort of spin on the game. And the last one's called Dirty Deeds. And that's just that it lets your cards kind of have extra abilities to screw each other up a little. That's basically Art at Scavengers as it comes in the box at the moment. Sean, you've played a few games with me. What are your initial thoughts on Art at Scavengers? This one was a really hard one to fathom for me. And I still don't think I've quite got to grips with my own feelings on the game. Now, I know that's not particularly helpful when we're trying to talk about a, a game. So I'm leaning towards not particularly liking this game. And I think it's because of a few reasons. I'll run through a few of them. I'm not a big fan of the theme. I think the theme in this is key. I think you have to get invested in the theme. You have to feel like you are in this post-apocalyptic world where you're basically scavenging because you are a scavenger and you're just eking out life i didn't really buy it it didn't really impress me not a massive fan of the artwork it's very bleak which is supposed to be but everything looks the same in my opinion now i know it's an improvement on the original because it's been done again by rio grande and the original was very basic graphics but again not really really grabbing me i have to disagree on the theme though i really love the theme i just think it's brilliant i think whatever it is about it the minute i heard it i was like that sounds really really interesting to me it's the kind of thing that i like in books uh, i've been reading the uh, the passage trilogy justin Cronin, which is something like this where there's a small amount of population left maybe that's what's been in my head um it's not that's not Ice Age theme, but, but you know, that kind of thing where it's, it's interesting to me to think any stories in which civilization drops and then what do we do? How do we survive? What's left of the human race? Now, don't get me wrong, this is still a deck building game. It's not completely themed all the way through, but the theme surely grabbed me. Well, that, I think that's a personal choice. I think if you threw a few zombies at it, then that's where my interest would peak. But. <laughs> Things that's like been overdone, yeah. Let's have another couple of <laughs> things like the road and stuff like that, which everybody absolutely loved. It just didn't get it. It's just, yeah, okay. I get that the world is pretty much dead and there's only a few people left, but uh, don't do back anything for me. Cage. Get back in the wrong cage. <laughs> another thing for me is the game speed. I think there is so much that can happen on your turn. People can scupper you and you have to rethink. And I feel like if people are prone to AP, this is 
one of the deck builders where they will struggle to take their turn and you almost have to have that rule where people start getting their hand ready for their turn before it's their turn because I think this one does take a little bit longer than a normal deck builder. Some of the good things for me is I feel like there's lots of paths to go down. Now, I'm not sure that all of them are winning paths, but there are avenues to explore, which is a good thing. But, all right, so coming on that, do you feel like you can really choose to go down a particular path? Oh, yeah, I was going to get onto that. I don't know if they're actually all winning paths or whether you choose to go down them, but there are paths to explore. I don't think you can choose. I kind of think that you're led in a certain direction given by what comes up and what your first few cards are. I think you tend to go down that path. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree with that. I think that to start with, it doesn't so much feel like you're choosing particular cards to buy. You're like at the beginning of Dominion, right? You look at that setup and you say, do you know what? I'm going to try and get a couple of them, a couple of them, and then start heading in a direction. Whether it's because we haven't got our heads around it enough, and it's not like it's a deep game, I don't think, but it doesn't feel like I can really choose what I'm going to go after. It, it feels more like I'm turning the cards over and going, well, that that's what I can hunt. Have I got any medication or not? I guess that's what I'm going to buy. I, I'm not sure that I'm actually shaping my own deck initially afterwards i i can see once you've got a few resources in your deck that i'm going to choose to get some engineers and build some buildings or i'm going to choose to to you know, go after some, some more skirmish points or what have you but initially that first push i'm not so sure and then the other thing that going from that that first start is that the initial junk and contested resources rewards if you get particularly good ones it can really set you up. It can really kick you off. And if you get kind of crappy ones, you can really stall. So how important do you think that initial first couple of cards you get in your deck are to, to the rest of the game? Oh, it's almost vital. For a little scenario, I think if somebody goes digging and pulls out a couple of med packs, given that a lot of the people that you want to bring into your deck that that you can buy if you want are only attainable if you have med packs so somebody getting med packs into their deck quite early it goes into the lead in my opinion and then on top of that people who win the skirmish and get the more combative cards almost make themselves stronger they're already winning that skirmish so they've already obviously got a deck that can win the skirmishes at the end and all of a sudden they're getting more combative cards and that means they're even stronger for the next skirmish. So I think there is definitely an element of luck and an element of people push down paths. Yeah, do you th- I mean, the rewards for the skirmish, do you feel like they're just a bit too random? Like no one definitely. wants a sled team, do they? So their team is rubbish. <laughs> but yeah, you get a, absolutely. You know, a tribe family as your first one, given they're useless during the game, is no good. But a tribe family worth five points you know, in the last couple of rounds is fantastic. Or, you know, a, a grenade early on is plus three for a fight when it comes out, which is, you know, great. Yeah. But it's completely random. <laughs> and also, you know, I've whinged about this because I whinged about it because you beat me on it last time. When you go all out to win the skirmishes and you win all the skirmishes apart from maybe one or two. And let me just clarify. If you don't win the skirmish outright, the card <laughs> goes into the dig pile. So therefore, somebody can go digging and win that card. So you've gone out all out for your skirmishes. You didn't win it outright, or you just had a bad hand that with that round. Somebody can go dig in and just take it for you, a shovel. You're pretty jammy to start pulling them out of the junkyard pile, though. Who, who would do that? 
Who would who indeed would do that pulling two in a, in in three rounds? I believe it was. <laughs> do you feel like there's honestly any choice when you go purchasing? When you've done your hunt and got your food and you've seen if you've got any medication in your hand, is is there ever any choice? No. So if you get enough, you're going to go for the thugs. They're going to give you three fight and three points at the end of the game. So it's a no brainer. And if you don't, you're pretty much limited unless you again have those med packs you're kind of limited to cards you don't really want or cards that aren't really going to help you so you're going for those thugs and if you don't get them there's only one or two cards that you're really going to consider to be honest i mean it's, it's only really one or two cards you can buy isn't there a lot of the time it's pretty much yeah because there's these two different uh currencies you generally end up having, well, I've got three of them and one of them, or that's the card that's three of them and one of them, so that's what I'm going to get. That's the way I felt about it anyway. Now, whether if you knew the game better, you could manipulate your deck better, it just doesn't feel like it because you're not you're not in control of every card that goes into your deck. With the dig-in and the skirmish, you're just going to get random cards, so it, it doesn't feel like you have that level of control. Right, the other thing I wanted to talk about was you have to play with these expansions. The four modules that come in the back of the book forget about playing without them it's, there's another game that sometimes i hear people say they don't like and it's rubbish and there's nothing to it and that's fresco because people play it and they don't put in the optional three modules which actually turn it into a game well artist scavenger is exactly the same if you played this without those four expansions i it would be dire it would be so dreary they bring in all the choices. They bring in those tribal leaders, which is, you know, the initial choice. I think they're really thematic and funny, be it the cannibal or the butcher or the one who doesn't want to fight or wherever they might be. I really think they're great. They also brings in the buildings, which is the only way which you can plan from turn to turn and brings in a bit more interaction and brings in the gangs. So there's a reason for building your deck in a certain way forget playing it without the expansions just don't even bother it's useless but with the expansions it brings in kind of more decisions and something that i'm really interested in seeing now is is with more expansions coming is it going to continue to improve and improve and improve because each of those initial modules have just improved the game right ronan question for you the tribal leaders yes i didn't think they were particularly well balanced what say you um I think that it's hard to tell because we're going to go back to what we were talking about in terms of it being random. If you get a couple of draws that go with what your tribal leader does, it's kind of going to come in for you, if that makes any sense. Like, for example, the ranger, he makes tribe families useful. He makes them so they've got, they can hunt. So if you happen to draw tribe families and you've at the beginning of the game, you've chosen the ranger as your leader, well, then... There you go. There's something a bit useful, you know. Uh, but only, surely only when you get to the point where you're winning skirmishes and it's completely random if you get them anyway. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so he might be completely useless to you throughout the whole really game. And some, <laughs> or yeah, but somebody else might have, like for instance, the one that gives you med packs just straight off the bat, and you're all, you're getting the ones, the cards that you need med packs for straight away. Doesn't that stick you into a bit of an early lead? Yeah, I think that's... Uh, you don't exactly get med packs. It's the butcher. You're harvesting your own people for their organs. That's right, yeah. You sacrifice a bit more thematic, <laughs> You have to kill someone, and then you can get some extra med, which is well worth it, because you start with some fairly useless cards. But I guess for the more squeamish out there, oh, sorry. You know, there's one like the Sergeant at Arms. The Sergeant at Arms prevents saboteurs from doing anything to your buildings or tools. Well, it 
depends on whether you play with people who like taking saboteurs or not. Absolutely, yeah. So it can be a bit hit and miss for me there. I think they're a good idea. I'm not sure how well they work and how effective they, they, they are. They can be spot on and they can be complete and utter game changers, like unfairly so in my opinion oh, I don't think they're that powerful I'll have to tone that down a bit there was there's definitely <laughs> one or two that in a couple of games you've gone like oh that has really worked out well for you there our mind's a bit useless but I tell you one more thing I think that maybe might be stopping us from really engaging and loving the game is it feels like the scoring's a bit weird and a bit removed from what from when you actually play the game does that make any sense to you you'll have to elaborate there a bit mate but my problem with the scoring centers around the gangs there's one one of them really that you know what you're going to get and that's you can tell who's got the most buildings you don't know if you're going to get the one for the most med packs and the most tools because unless you're sitting there counting up every tool and every med pack people get and you can't do that because they get a lot of them secretly who knows who's going to get those points at the end of the game it's completely random and i don't like that aspect i'd like to know it's not that random though really i don't i don't think so i think that if you want to get those gangs you have to think about them and go after them meds is probably the one that i'll say no that that's probably a bit more random because that is just a draw but in terms of tools you can if you dig a lot you're going to get loads of tools that's where most of them come from. There's, there's hardly any in the skirmish pile, the contested resources pile. And the buildings one, yeah, you're right. You can see who's going to get the buildings one, but you are sacrificing turns and, and sacrificing... In order to build buildings, you have to use cards out of your hand. So you're sacrificing turns to build these buildings. And in a game that's only 14 rounds, if you're giving up a round or two to build these buildings just for five points, and then if you're also then giving up rounds to bury cards under the buildings to bring them out later, so you're having, you know, you're kind of building up the useless rounds here, and out of 14, to have too many that you're not being useful on, I'm not sure, I don't think it's as powerful as it first seems, put it that way. Yeah, so you were saying about the point scoring in general, you've got a few issues with it. It's not issue so much i just feel like it's a little bit disconnected from actually playing the game so it's almost it's kind of hard to score efficiently does that make any sense at all because the the best scoring cards again in the contest resources so they're random whether they come out or not and then the best card in which to hire is the thugs which gives you three points but if you can get that, it's completely down to what cards you draw. One thing with the thugs is you need a combination of six of meds and food. So there's no real way of planning to have six, a six combination on that. Because say I'd say, right, I'm going to make my deck the best hunting deck I possibly can. The problem with that is then I'll never get any meds, which means I can't buy the best hunting cards, which means I can't create a good hunting deck. So I have to bring meds into it. But then to get meds, it kind of it dilutes what you're trying to do. Do you know what I mean? It seems hard to kind of precision and go, that's what I'm going to do in order to score points in that manner to win me the game. Yeah, I suppose I hadn't really thought enough about it, but the more we talk, the more I just see it's quite a random game. There is strategy to it, but there's a lot of random to it as well. Yeah, again, I think, you know, I'm hoping it's that we haven't sort of dug deep into it enough and really kind of got the clicking moment of going oh i see how this all works together now i'm not very hopeful that that's true to be honest with you i'm thinking maybe it just is quite random it's a bit too random for our taste but i'm still going to keep some faith with it sean have you got any final thoughts on it yeah i just want to 
I feel like I've just been completely down on this, and I think there are things that it does well. I think interaction, it does well. I think there is a lot, a lot going on. The snipers, for instance, where you interrupt people and say, uh, "No, you can get rid of that, son. Off your pop." Things like that, and it does create a good bit of table chat and a good. It's quite funny when somebody takes out, even if it's yours, sometimes because it's just not what you'd expect in a deck builder. And I think it does bring new elements to the deck building genre. There's a lot of dominion in this game. There's a lot of dominion in this game, but it's just different enough to make it worthwhile trying it out. It's not for my taste, and I think it's been made clear. I haven't quite got on with this game enough to actually enjoy it, but I think it brings enough to recommend that people play it and give it a go because I think there's a lot of people out there who do love it and think the world of it and I think a lot of people will enjoy it if they give it a go. Yeah, for me, it seems almost I'm caught between two two stools here. For a base deck builder, it's Dominion, right? No, I don't think anyone's ever going to improve on that. It, so as deck builders have evolved over the past five years... To me, they've either gone to a direction where they've gone a lot deeper and they're part of a much bigger sort of a system. So you're looking at things like Core Worlds, whereby it's a two-hour game and there's loads going on and cards interact in lots of different ways. Or they've streamlined and gone very simple, quick playing, done in 20, 25 minutes. Now, Arctic Scavenger seems a little bit caught in the middle. The base game is boring it's not even streamlined because it's got the two resources and that's enough actually to take it out from being as slick as some of its competitors i mean i'll say like for example the dc deck building game it's just slick it's just such a quick playing game but it's also not gone far enough in evolving as a deck builder to make it compete with the deeper deck builders that are out there or the deeper card games that are out there that it's competing against so i think that's maybe why i'm waiting on these expansions and hoping that what they do is put more meat on the bones of what to me is an interesting theme an interesting idea but it just if it's going to go meteor it needs to add a bit more meat on there and it needs to add some more strategic options and leave me feel like i'm in control of what i'm doing i'm not just completely at the fate of whatever the, the deck decides to throw at me so Artist Scavengers, I quite like you. I think the theme might be giving you a warm, fuzzy glow, but you're going to need to give me some more in order to stay in my collection. So that was us on Arctic Scavengers. Now, as described at the top of the show, we're going to talk about Sid Meier's Civilization, the board game, and Clash of Cultures, two quite similar games based around the same sort of thing. So what we're going to do is compare them. So starting off, Sid Meier's Civilization, the board game, came out in 2010. It's from Fantasy Flight Games, designed by Kevin Wilson, who we've talked about many times on this, who did Android, Arkham Horror, Cosmic Encounter, and so many others. It plays two to four players. With a playtime of roughly 180 minutes, but sometimes I think that could be a bit optimistic. Uh, it's based on the video game, obviously. Um, it's all about building, exploration, a bit of negotiation with different powers, etc. So how do you play, Steve? 
everyone chooses a civilization. You've got the Americans, the Russians, the Chinese, the Romans, the Egyptians, and the Germans, and each have a unique power. Then the map is set up depending on the number of players, with each player placing their starting city. So this game has a huge rule book, so I'm not going to go into any depth at all. What I'm going to do is go through the turns and just have a rough overview of the game. So turn one is start, you build your cities and you can change your government. Turn two is trade, you collect your trade points. Now trade are available on the map tiles and they're used to trade with other players during the phase or research new technologies and are a substitute for the hammers icon, but I'll talk about them later. City management, which is build a unit, a building or a wonder. These are usually built with production points, which are the hammers that I was talking about earlier. You can devote a city to the arts, which is collect culture, or harvest a resource. And resources are found on the map and around the city, and you can bring them in with your cities or your scouts. Movement, so you're moving your armies or your scouts. The armies, they do what they say on the tin, and the scouts will explore the map, harvest resources, and found new cities for you. The last one is research. You have a trade dial on your player card, and... This is where I was talking about gathering in the trade earlier. Once you reach a certain level, then you can buy a technology or research a technology. For instance, you need six to get a level one, 11 for a level two, etc. Technology must be stacked in a pyramid style. For instance, if you had four level ones, then you can have three level twos and two level threes and one level four. So when you do this, your tech goes all the way down to, to zero unless you have gold. If you've got gold, it will go down to the amount of gold you have. So in general, you'll be exploring the map, harvesting resources, including trade points, founding new cities that will add to your haul each round, building your armies in order to both protect and attack, raising your tech level by researching the new technology. These will unlock new units, buildings, and governments, as well as giving you more powerful abilities during the game and providing gold coins. Combat is almost like a whole new game in this. And I'm really not going to go into it other than to say that it's done by placing unit cards against each other and that your strength can be enhanced by technology, buildings, and unit numbers. There are four ways to win this game. Culture. There's a culture track if you advance to a certain level on that. Technology, the first player to achieve the level 5, which is spaceflight. You can have an economic victory, which is accumulate 15 gold coins, and military, which is to conquer another player's capital. As I said, massive rulebook, haven't really touched it, but that's the overview. Ronan, Clash of Cultures. So Clash of Cultures uh, attempts to do some of the same things as Civilization. It certainly is inspired by the Civilization computer games. It came out last year, 2012. It's designed by Christian Markerson, and his only previous effort is uh, Merchants and Marauders, pirate-based game. Again, it could be a Sid Meier link there. And it's printed predominantly by Z-Man Games, and Z-Man one of the certainly most successful printers going they they used to take euros really across and and make them available to american market and still do agricola terra mystica or at labora stone age goa twa the pandemic we could keep going there's certainly a massive uh, publisher the clash of cultures is again for two to four players suggesting playing time is four hours um that's interesting it can take four hours certainly for a full game but there is an early end condition 
for the game and it means well one of the games i played was 45 minutes long um a game we played the other night i think lasted an hour and a half two hours because if anyone ever gets eliminated the game finishes on that turn so so be aware that yeah give yourself four hours to play it but it, it certainly might not take that long i mean clash of cultures each player starts in an area of the board. They're as far away as possible. And you have a bunch of unexplored tiles between you. That probably sounds familiar as to Ziv. You start with a city, a base size city of size 1. Cities can go up to size 5. And one settler who you can be able to explore and found new cities with. If in the game, it's going to last supposed to last i should say uh, 18 turns and everyone gets three actions per turn and you're going to be using those actions to try and explore the map build up your city develop your technologies another game with a tech tree here this one is uh, more involved certainly than the civilization one and it's also in fact more limited the, all the uh, advances you're going to get really they're going to take you up to just about about the renaissance kind of there's a bit of astronomy and chemistry in there but no further and that's only in certain areas in areas such as warfare and what have you it's all very much restricted and limited there's no gunpowder or so that's the kind of area you're working in things you can do during your turn you're going to look to advance you're going to develop your technologies which every technology you develop does something to you either makes your actions more efficient gives you free actions allows access to other areas of the game where the different bits of your city you can build or different units or what have you you can be able to found cities obviously now interesting thing with this is that the size of each of your cities cannot exceed the total number of cities you have so if you own three cities, then the largest any of your cities can build up to is a size three. So you, you are forced to explore and find fertile new areas or you know, possibly more efficiently sometimes conquer other cities, be they uh, barbarian or other players, because there are barbarians in this. They're, they're very active and very much part of the game. Then each city can be activated once on your turn. So you have three actions per turn and you're either going to be able to develop, build more units from them or collect resources from the surrounding area or indeed increase the size of that city as long as you own enough cities. You can move your units around the board. Movement is not quick, but I think it's, it's actually vital to this game. It's called Clash of Cultures and the game works best when people are willing to, to move those units around, encounter each other, have a bit of conflict. It makes it a lot of fun. Possibly quite thematically, movement by sea is, is harder to, to develop. It costs a lot of resources to get yourself a decent navy going, but much more efficient in terms of moving, which I think probably echoes the, the way things were back in the day. Other things you can do, you can just make you, your uh, cities a bit happier. It's called civic improvement. And also... One thing you can do is culturally influence each other's cities. So you can actually steal points of each other. Um, thematically, you know, it's your culture. If you've built up a stronger culture, your influence will spread to the, to a city and, and you'll, you'll be influenced and what have you. Um, it's kind of a strange tit-for-tat mechanism in effect in the game, but it's kind of something I guess you have to keep on top of. And then at the end of every three turns, there's a status phase because you're going to get certain objectives during the game. You get to draw them at, at the end of every three turns. There's a special during the special phase, and and they're available to score two points if you do them. Now these all these objectives are split into something culturally, you know, something that you've done to develop, having lots of cities, lots of happy cities, or what have you, or something militarily. Have you defeated barbarians, or have you got a large army, or what have you? So there's definitely a, a to and fro there. There's two sides to the game. The one is the more almost Euro-y resource management, development of a tech tree side, and the other one is the are you actually getting out there, moving around and attacking things side of things. And then there's a little bit of upkeep. At the end of the game, there's five ways you're going to have scored points. 
for every city piece you own, that's either you've built yourself or you've managed to culture influence, you're going to get one point. You're going to get half a point for each advance you've managed to get on your tech tree. So constantly churning out these advances and developing, as well as making your civilization more efficient, is also going to score you some points at the end. Now, yes, you can score half points in this game, and yes, you can lose by half a point, can't you, Sean? And that's not annoying at all, is it? Yeah, let's move on quickly. Quickly, before we kill him again. Um <laughs> Wonders are in this game, big part of the Civ computer game, and they are part of this game as well. They become available as, as people develop their tech trees, and they're there. They're quite expensive, however, they're certainly a way to go for, because this is a game when, after the full uh, 18 turns, a winning score I found might be somewhere in the 30s, maybe, and you're going to get five whole points for, for building a wonder, so definitely something to go for. Um, they can be stolen from you, though, so if someone conquers the city, the wonder's in, so again, kind of a bit of incentive there to, to certainly develop your own military it's don't forget this is clash people are going to fight those objective cards i talk about they're all worth two vps that, that depending on how you go how you want to do them but but they're available and then there's event victory points now during the game as you everyone develops their tech trees they're going to be developing their culture and their their mood levels their happiness levels and there's a way in which they're all going to trigger events. Everyone can trigger a maximum of six of these events. Now, these events are the way that barbarians come into the game and the way barbarians spread and they trigger barbarians attacking your cities. So if you're not prepared for that, it's definitely a way that can cause you a lot of trouble. And also, they they just going to do some stuff. They're either going to make some good things available to the first person to exploit it or they're going to do something horrific to you. Usually the bad things you're able to mitigate against if you've developed certain technologies. And then these ones that give you VPs, there's things like uh, volcanoes, for example. Now, a volcano, if you've got a lot of decent-sized cities, will blow up one of your cities. But those bits that have been taken off the board get put to one side, and instead of being worth one VP per city piece at the end of the game, they're worth two VP. So the idea that, you know, something famous happened to your city, so therefore it kind of went down in history, and, and you got a little bit more influence because of this. So you're getting points at the end, but sacrificing maybe efficiency or what you're planning on to do during. Is that a good or a bad thing? Or I'm not sure. And that's the basics of Clash of Cultures. It's, uh, again, another Civ game in which you're trying to develop your civilization and trying to conquer the world, I guess, be it militarily or peacefully. Sean, do you want to kick us off with some comparisons between these two? Okay, well, let's start at the beginning. These are both quite well-produced games. Um, I think probably the actual civilization, the board game, gets the edge in terms of just production value, but then Fantasy Flight do tend to put a lot of money into the production. It's a very lavish-looking game. It's a very beautiful game. There's a lot to it. But that doesn't mean Clash of Cultures isn't, because Clash of Cultures is. It has a very, very clever way of doing the tech trees, much better than the Civ one, because the Civ one just takes up so much space building your pyramid with all these cards. Yeah, and where Civ uses little flags for your for your units in terms of your infantry and accessory, your armies, and a little caravan for your settlers. Clash Cultures actually uses miniatures. They say you've got a little boat and you've got a little army dude and you've got a little settler who wanders off into, into the unknown. So in, in that aspect, I think probably Civilization has the edge for me, but both very nice-looking games. Yeah, I, I mean, I agree. They're, but they're both visually striking. Um 
in terms that you get a lot more of those little plastic bits, don't you? Clash of cultures, so, so they kind of catch the eye a bit. But as you said, FFG, that you'd be hard to find an FFG game which they skimped on the components. It just looks nicer, just a lot more cardboard. You know, Clash of Cultures looks a bit, bit more plasticky. You mentioned combat in Civ, and I didn't really go over it in Clash of Cultures. It's very simple. You roll a dice for each unit that's involved, and then the total number is called your combat value. You divide it by five, and round down, and that's how many hits you do against each other. Whereas Civ is a bit more kind of fiddly and intricate, and you have cards which get turned 90 degrees depending upon what level of tech you're at, and it's a Oh, I mean, I never really got my hand completely around combat, which is probably why I kept on getting my behind handed to me. How do you compare the combat in the two games, Sean? I think Civ has combat, as I said in my my introduction to the game, it's like a whole new game. It's like they developed a card game and thought it's not good enough to go on its own. Let's just shove it in another game. It's so involved and and you do have to take some thinking. You get more cards if you've got certain upgrades and you get better units, but there's a paper, rock, scissors thing going on where I think it's infantry will be ground. I can't remember what it is. Or air will always be ground and infantry will always beat these people. So no matter how well you are advanced in that area, if someone else brings out a certain card, you're just going to lose automatically. But I don't know how much it actually affects the the outcome or the game there's, there's not that much skill to play in the cards it's just if someone plays a card then you're going to react to it and the person with more cards is almost always going to win so the person with the strongest army is always going to win so for me that element wasn't my favorite in Civ but with Clash Culture it's just simply done it's simply done you, you know you've got a chance of winning with a lucky dice roll or an unlucky dice roll for, for the more superior force. But more often than not, the more superior force is going to win because they've got more troops than you. And that's the way it should be. And it doesn't take away from the game. You don't have to stop what you're doing and set up this different game. You just roll a couple of dice. That's the way I feel about it. Yeah, I think for me, to be effective militarily in both games, you certainly have to plan ahead and you have to to develop you know it's not easy to get units built in clash of cultures it's not easy to move them around they move very slowly so that build-up has to be done you have to 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 build towards something or or get a big city somewhere in the heart of the issue in order to spawn some units out of it Uh, and in sieve you also have to do the same thing you have to build it up and develop and, and make sure that certain areas are strong and see why the areas are getting developed but the way I think about it is that in Clash of Cultures, it's slightly easier to see where you're developing towards than in Civ. It's a bit more obscure. And also, in Clash of Cultures, it, it's probably a bit more important. You're probably going to fight a few more times in Clash of Cultures. And you're gonna, it's easier to score points by fighting. And, and in Civ, it's kind of a lot of effort, which can give you the edge in the game, you know. But, but to me, maybe it kind of feels like a bit too much effort for not enough reward. Um as well as combat, what about the player interaction in general? The way that, as general, that combat joke, but I'm just, the way players interact outside of combat, how do you think the two games weigh up against each other? I think Civ, in its essence, is a lot more sort of linear. You're just on a path and you're trying to achieve what you're doing. And I think the game doesn't really encourage you, unless you're going for that military victory, which I think I've only seen once in all the games I've played of it somebody actually go for it you're not really going to come into contact and the game doesn't really 
sort of urge you to come into contact with each other and to fight with clash of cultures you're with the barbarians you're almost gonna have a fight you you someone's gonna attack you whether it be barbarians and you're quite i think you're a lot closer together in clash of cultures a four-player civ game you, you tend to be i don't know if the tiles are just bigger or it just feels that way but you just tend to be a little bit more isolated or i feel that i'm a little bit more isolated um just doing my own thing so in that aspect i think clash of cultures is a more engaging in terms of the group experience i i, I agree with you basically i haven't got too much more to add to that one of the other interactions maybe in Civ is that um, something I was going to talk about maybe a bit later is that you're all buying from the same market of buildings and what have you and you do have to keep an eye on who's buying what because once that market runs out that's it you can't get any more and yeah yeah, I, I, maybe I'll talk about it a bit later but higher player numbers that's something you've really got to keep an eye on next thing I kind of wanted to talk about is in both games you're to some degree having to manage the resources of, of your burgeoning empire in order to develop Clash of Cultures, I think, for me, goes down a bit more of a Euro-y kind of a slant with this in that you're actually collecting resources, you're keeping track of them. Um, there's wood, there's ore, there's gold, which is kind of like a joker, there's ideas and there's food. And each of them has slightly different roles and you can build slightly different things with them. And you, you, it's something you definitely have to be aware of is how you're managing your resources, where you're getting them from, where they're available... And in Civ, it's, it's as much as I said that Clash of Cultures is a bit Euro, which tends to suggest abstract, Civ feels a lot more abstract to me. It's And it's kind of a bit more, I don't know, hard mathy, if that makes any sense. What do you reckon to the two different ways of doing resource management? Well, I think with Civ, it's really got two very, very important resources, which are trade and production so the production is how you're going to build your buildings and trades basically how you're going to research your technologies uh your buildings are going to sort of add to what you're trying to do and your technologies can win you the game and also give you nice bonuses but you're always going to collect them it's just one one especially trade it's just one turn you just collect all the trade it's not something that you are going to choose to do you're just going to automatically collect all the trade around your city and when you're building a building you're automatically going to collect all your production around the city so it's not they're not things that you have to go you know what i'm going to collect from that city and that's what i'm going to do with that city this time which is what you do clash of cultures so i think there's a lot more thought goes into what you're going to do and why you're going to do it or a lot more planning therefore there are resources that you can collect in Civ, but they tend to be in quite small amounts and for specific things. So you're only going to go for them when you get to a point where you need them. You're not going to just build them up because you've got a plan in mind. I think in kind of a way it's similar to the way they both handle combat kind of in that with Civ, it's much more about long-term planning and it's much more abstracted you, you have to develop and, and see how each of your actions is going to affect you further down the line am i going to need this amount of trade or this amount of uh, production further down the line uh, as i'm building this building is this sort of short-term gain or long-term gain whatever you whereas clash of cultures you can probably adjust a bit more on the hoof you can kind of go you know what i've built a city here where there's lots of ore around but i've also got one over here that can get me lots of wood if once you kind of understand the game a bit and therefore you can choose which one which on each turn to activate for them so i kind of you know i think almost in similar ways that they do that 
how about I think we're game we kind of went over it a bit but tech trees how how the two games handle the tech trees I think the actual techs that you get are very similar in terms of they will give you a bonus and they will influence certain areas of the board for you and just give you or help you along your way I think they're more important to get those techs because it is an outright way of winning Civ, and I think it's the most popular way, certainly from the games that I've been part of. I think I've seen one attempt at a culture victory, and I've seen one victory through military, but other than that, and I must have played the game six or seven times, I've seen just, it's always come down to who gets that space flight technology so that in that aspect it's it's very important um i think there's more to them in civilization in terms of for instance the army one i think there's just a few maybe three or four things that really affect your armies in clash of cultures they can you can give yourself steel swords and you can make it so that your 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 cities are are better defended etc but i think there's individual regiment or unit upgrades you can get in civilization and you can go for maybe improving your cavalry or improving your foot soldiers or your armory whatever you um and that there's more to it it's more intricate it's more involved in terms of that but whether it needs to be i don't know what's your take i think that maybe the civ ones are slightly more focused and more intricate in certain areas but then the clash of cultures, I feel like maybe they're slightly broader, if that makes any sense. I, I feel like it's probably... So every tech you take in both games affects how you play the game. And certainly familiarity with the tech tree is an important thing. And, and I feel like they both handle things both tactically and strategically in, in how you take the tech. So I think they're both strong in their own way. Um, I prefer the way Clash of Cultures handles it. I think you get more advances, so I feel like I've got more chance to explore different ways um, of going about things, as opposed to the Civ one. I feel like you kind of have to specialise in a certain way. And and the whole game in Civ is a bit like that. You Pretty early, you have to decide what sort of victory condition you're attempting to win by, and, and then really hone in on that. And Almost every decision has to be based on this is where I'm trying to get to as quickly as possible because if you don't do that, certainly good players, they're just going to hose you. Oh, definitely. Absolutely. One question I've got for you. These games, they start off very, very similar in that you've got a hidden map. You've got a corner of the map where each player will have their dark city. You'll have a settler who will go and explore the map for you. Where does it? Where do they branch Where do they start getting a little bit different where for you what's the, what's the sort of first sign or the first part where they go their own path i think that the similarities are i was almost going to say superficial there where obviously they're a little bit deeper than superficial because they are based pretty much on the same computer game they are both attempting to recreate the same game i think that they diverge as games at the same point as they diverge during play in that the first couple of moves are, are fairly scripted. You know, you, everyone's going to do things fairly similar both times, and and then as the round, that first round develops, as the game develops, the first after half an hour, suddenly you start doing different things. And like I say, Clash of Cultures, um, it was something I was going to touch on is how much 
random there is in each game. I think there's probably a lot more random in Clash of Cultures. And in general, it's set up to be a bit more tactical. You do kind of... It's possible to have that overarching strategy and possibly even necessary, but you must react to what's going on. You must be tactical to a certain amount in your decisions. In Civ, I feel it's much, much more about the grand strategy and how you implement that strategy as efficiently as you can. It's almost impossible to be completely efficient in Clash of Cultures because too many different things can happen. Too many things can get thrown at you. And again, with that higher level of interaction, what everyone else is doing on the board is going to affect what you can do. With Civ, I feel like it's very much a strategy game. This is what I want to do. This is where I want to be in four hours' time. How am I going to get there? Okay, how about player numbers, Sean? What do you think are the, the best player numbers for these games? And again, how do they compare on the player numbers? I'm not sure that civilization has a best and worst. I think you end up kind of doing your own thing. Or, as I said, some people may completely disagree with me. But in any game that I've played in, there's very little interaction. There's very little attacking each other. You end up just going for what you're going for. And you just get on with it. Of course, if you're in a good gaming group, there's going to be chat anyway. But it's not necessarily fueled by the game. So, for me, Civ can be two, three or four for me. Clash of Cultures, I think the more the better. I think the top end of the game is where the fun lies. The more that's going on, the more crazy, the more that people are sort of coming over and giving you a slap or culturally in- influencing your cities and it becomes tit for tat and then they're concentrating on each other and somebody else sneaks around the back door and get, and attacks one of the, their cities. That's where the beauty of Clash of Cultures is. It's just so much can happen. If someone manages to get those ships out into the sea, then they open up the whole board. They strike from anywhere. I think that's the beauty, and that's why I think the more player, the better for me in Clash. I agree with you in that. With Clash of Cultures, I think the more, the better. Um, And also, I think how the map develops is quite important in that. If the map allows you all to come together and interact, it makes for a better game one of the kind of it wasn't dull it was okay but less fun games i had of it was when we all kind of played it as a euro we were all just trying to collect resources and build off our own little things up and we didn't really interact much and probably the funnest game of it i've had is where one player instigated lunacy by pretty much attacking all three other players and it all became kind of tit for tat you still had to develop you couldn't be mindless because you can't develop armies quickly enough to just throw them away but we were all interacting very much and culturally influenced each other and attacking and being wary of, of where the threats were from each other and that was a lot of fun and again you need that player number in order to be able to do that with Civ I really didn't enjoy it as much with four players or even with three a couple of reasons firstly is downtime that lack of interaction and the fact that it is quite deep and strategic means that when everyone else is thinking about what they're doing, there's not a terrible amount for me to do because I, I should be fairly set in where I'm going. Yeah, there's bits to think about, but not so much. And also one of my big, huge bugbears with it is that in that market, which is where the buildings and developments and whatever are available, there's a set number. And it's the same number whether you have two players or four players. And now... In a four-player game, you can get screwed over by that market and, and buildings that you really need for what you're going for running out. And I 
for me, they run out too quickly when there's four of you. And it's quite frustrating and it slows the game down. Is there really a limit on the number of, I don't know, say temples or whatever it is in the whole world? You know, oh, look, Mark over there's built three, so I can only build one. Really? Does that make sense? Uh, not for me. I, I really think they should have allowed you to have more buildings with more players and to give you that little bit of freedom to stop it feeling quite so grindy. But then conversely, as a two-player game, I don't think Clash of Cultures is that interesting. Because of that high military factor, it becomes very zero-sum. Two players in Civ and three or four Clash of Cultures, are, uh, yeah, or four really Clash of Cultures are the best player numbers for me. So you just could have said you agree with me instead of with all, all the waffle, eh? Yeah, but the waffle is, that's how I roll. <laughs> okay, um, but let's talk about the random factor in each game. It seems strange when you compare a fantasy flight game with, with a game from any other company, but Clash of Cultures has a much stronger random factor for me than Civ has. I don't think there's a lot of randomness in Civ. I think maybe when you discover those huts and villages, they have different things in them, but, but not, not a lot. A bit of flipping the tiles and what have you. In Clash of Cultures, there's a lot of random guns. There's a lot of stuff that's going to happen to you that you can't necessarily plan for. You might be able to mitigate against, but planning for, not so much. Um, you're going to have those barbarians appear on certain tiles and not on others. They also then get added by certain players and they get added in certain places. And sometimes they're going to attack and sometimes they're not. Event cards happen regularly through the game. They're good or bad. Um, they, they tend to kind of have some good and some bad on them. Or if they're all bad, then there was a way you could avoid the all bad. The objectives you get, which can guide a lot of points, you know, up to, I think, is it 12 or 14 points you can possibly get out from those? And if you get ones that match, then that can really be helpful. Or even ones that you've already done towards the end of the game, that's obviously fantastic, as opposed to ones that you have to start chasing. Now, none of them are really, really difficult. But if you know, as for everything, if they fall in line for you, then that, that's cool. It's a good thing to happen. Uh, and also, although it's not particularly maybe random, it's maybe a more of a chaotic factor. It's We'll go back to it again. That level of interaction, what other players do, affects you more. Civ just feels a bit more like you kind of know what's coming, you kind of can prepare for it, and you can follow yourself along a scripted path for a lot of the game. Sean? Yeah, agreed. I've said it before, and I'll say it again. For such a massive game in terms of the scope, I mean, that rule book is, was it 37 pages long for Civ? For such a massive game with loads and loads of rules, it doesn't feel like you can do a lot. It feels like you're stuck on one of four paths and and, they, and everyone knows you're on those paths. It feels just like you're going in a straight line. You, you go for what you're going for and you stick to it because branching out, trying different things doesn't really help you. So in terms of the random with Civ, I think there isn't a lot of random. I do think you can plan in Clash. I do think you can plan for the for the things to happen once you know the game a little bit, but you can't you can't put in contingencies for everything because there just isn't enough time and these things start happening right from the off. So yeah, in terms of the random clash is a much more random game. It's going to give you a lot more surprises, and I think with Civ, you kind of know what's going to happen. You kind of know what everybody's doing and why they're doing it. And you know, almost for me, about two thirds into the game, you kind of know who's going to win. 
Civ's got variable player powers. You all are a different specific nation and they all have different starts. And Clash of Cultures doesn't, which is one of the things I've certainly heard complaints kind of about or request that it might make things more interesting. What, how do you reckon those specific nations and variable player powers affect the two games? I think it's one of the elements that I do enjoy about Civ. You definitely have the scope to play the game in a certain way. Now, you can change that up, obviously, but it's nice to play the Germans as the Germans in and it, this is like the World War One, World War Two Germans, so you're gonna be attacking a lot. Uh it's nice to play as the Romans. Conquest, get as much land as you can. That's that's where that's where the, the beauty of that is for me. Uh does it tie you into playing in that that specific way? No it doesn't. There's enough scope in the game to go your own way. You can change your government, etc. I think it would make clash more interesting maybe as a variant or something like that rather than the norm because something in the back of my mind is thinking that it might actually ruin the game because i kind of like the way that that they all start we all start even and they all start exactly the same and you go down your own path and there's much more freedom in clash so i'd like to see it as a variant i'd like to try it if somebody comes up with it or if the game company themselves brings it out but I'd still like to know that I could go back to just having the same player powers. Yeah, I think it's kind of almost an engagement thing for me. It's You can engage with your civilization more if you think you are Rome or Egypt or Russia or whatever it might be, as opposed to I'm green or I'm yellow or I'm red, you know? Little things, please, very simple minds. And I think maybe there might just be that you know, it's your little hook of, oh, this is who I am. We're, we're going to be the, you know rampaging Russian lunatics this turn and, and next time we're going to be the whoever's um, okay I think we're kind of getting towards the end of things here's one crucial question for you they both set out to capture the feeling or to interpret the civilization computer games into the board game medium how well do they achieve that this is kind of a no brainer for me to be honest I think Civ captures some of the elements but Clash captures most of the elements I think Civ, yeah, it's, a, it's the license of the computer game, so it's going to bring certain things that you find familiar, and there is the exploration, but in the Civ games, you feel free, and you feel like you're creating something that wasn't there before, and that you're not being driven to create, you're making your own little world, and that feeling is much more dominant in Clash than it is in the actual Civ board game for me. Again, I agree with you. This is horrible. We're agreeing too much. This is this. terrible. We need, to re- re- <laughs> we need to re-record this. Yeah, let's talk about something we, we both yeah we can disagree on. Um, yeah, d- Clash sets out to recreate that first few hours of, of a game of Civ, whereby you're building up, you're expanding, you're using the more basic technologies, and you're kind of setting yourself up for the end game. And that's the bit I always found most fun. In, in playing the game, you know, I, I got quite stressed later on where you're actually trying to get to an end goal, if you like. With that bit where you're setting yourself up, I always found, like I said, to be the most fun part of those games. And God knows I spent enough hundreds of hours playing them to have enjoyed them quite a bit. And Clash, like you said, does that for me. There are certain elements not in there. Uh, almost understandably I guess otherwise we wouldn't be talking about a 3 or 4 hour game we'd be talking about an 8 or 10 hour game and you know look back to the 80s for that version of of Civilization. but it does capture my favourite part of the games and that freedom it's probably a a bit more American-y in terms of of different things happening a a bit less 
kind of yeah, that ability to plan out than, than you might like. But like you say, as we've said it all the way through, Civ, the actual board game, does feel too scripted. I don't feel like uh, I am able to make as many effective decisions in as broad enough a scope as I would like to. So, Sean, that leads us to the last bit. Final thoughts on the two games. I think I just want to point one thing out. I actually really enjoy Civilization, the board game. And for me, before Clash came out, it was obviously the one game where you could almost play Civilization, the computer game, as a board game. And it, it was it was definitely a good attempt. And I, I enjoy the game. And it's different enough to Clash for me to still want to play it occasionally. But this was a straight-up battle. I think, for me, Clash is going to win every day because of the freedom. And it's as simple as that. It's the freedom to do something different to your neighbour and the freedom to change your mind on that and the freedom to try a few different things to see what comes off and maybe run with a couple of them, maybe don't run with a couple of them. I think with Civ, as we've laboured the point, you go for one strategy and you keep on that path and veering off it will just see you lose the game. So for me, Clash wins the battle of the games, but Civilization is still a very good effort and a game I enjoy. Again, yeah, for me, I, I do prefer Clash of Cultures as a game. Um, I, I found Civ a bit too frustrating uh, I found it, it doesn't suit my personal tastes. I'm not a great one for pure efficiency within narrow decisions. It's, it's not a style of game I like. I like to be able to feel like we can, I can bounce it around a bit and have a go down different avenues. And Clash captures that. And I can see that Civ is a decent game. but And I certainly wouldn't turn down a game of it. And you can twist my arm to play it. And two play, I think it's very interesting. But for me, Clash of Cultures is my preferred game in this genre. So I'm going to talk about Discworld Ankh Morpork from 2011. It was published in the UK and the US by Mayfair Games, but there's a collector's and deluxe editions which are published by Tree Frog Games. The designer is Martin Wallace, who we've talked about plenty on the Game Fit. He's designed games like Age of Steam, Brass, A Few Acres of Snow, London, Rise of Empires, and the list goes on. The player numbers for this are 2 to 4, and the playing time, it's advertised as 60 minutes, and that's pretty much what it is. This game's all based around the Discworld series by Terry Pratchett, and it basically involves area control and manipulation and some hand management. This, I believe, is the first of a three-game Discworld license for Martin Wallace and Tree Frog Games, and it's going to be followed up by The Witches, which comes out in September. So, how do you play Discworld and Morpork? To start the game... Each player will be randomly dealt a personality. Now, these are personalities from the Discworld books. And this is going to define their win conditions. You keep this secret, and this is how you win the game. There's a few different ways to win the game. For example, one player would win when the card draw pile is depleted. There's three of them that win by controlling a certain amount of areas, and one wins by having minions in different areas. And there are others. 
The gameplay in this game is driven by the player cards available to each person. The cards are divided into two colours, brown and green, with the green deck placed on top of the brown deck. And the brown deck's basically going to offer you better actions and rewards as you go into the deck. On a player's go, they will choose to and play a card from their hand. The cards will have actions along the top that the player chooses whether they use them, and they have to do it in order from left to right. The only mandatory action is the random event, where players must draw a random event card and trigger the event on it. Some examples are randomly placed trolls on the board, and that's going to make it harder if you control areas. Demons can come onto the board and stop people controlling those areas completely and stop people using their powers. There's a dragon which just clears all the pieces from whatever player from one section of the board, and there's mysterious murders going on where you remove people's minions from the board. So that's just the random action side. Now, there are other actions. The other possible actions are you can place or move a minion, and minions are basically how you control the areas. The rule is that you must place a minion on an area where you already have somebody or an area next to it. Placing a building is the next action. Each player has six buildings, and putting a building in an area will give that player the ability card for that area. The abilities for each area range from having extra money to being able to pay to remove trouble markers, which we'll talk about later, uh, the ability to avoid random events and so on. You can assassinate. You can remove other players' minions or a troll or a demon from the board. You can remove a trouble marker from an area of your choice. Some cards have a little scroll on the top, and that means that you can use the text that is on the bottom of the card, and that's another unique action that's unique just to that card. Take money. Some of them just simply have an amount of money, and you take that amount of money from the bank. Play another card, so people can chain their cards together in this way. And the last one is interrupt, where you can just interrupt somebody and stop them doing something. So I talked about trouble markers. Now, what do trouble markers do? Whenever a minion is placed in an area with another colored minion, a trouble marker must be placed. If any minion is moved or removed from the area, the trouble marker goes. So what do they do? The player can only assassinate a minion if there's a trouble marker present, and buildings can't be built in an area containing a trouble marker. So trouble markers, as well as being a way to win the game for one of the characters, it's, it's, a, it's quite an important aspect of the game. So the game ends when one of the players meets their victory condition or when the draw deck runs out. If the personality that allows the victory should the draw deck run out is not present, then the player with the most points wins. Points are awarded for minions and buildings on the board and money held. So very light game and over to Ronan. Yeah, it is a very light game. It's... I think this is the start of Martin Wallace's move towards lighter games. People were still expecting to sort of bring out deeper games. And they heard this, he had this IP and thought, wow, fantastic, a real deep um, Discworld game. So perhaps the wrong people started getting excited because this is very much a game that's marketed at the casual audience. It's the kind of game that, you know, it will be sold in Waterstones or the big bookstores over here. And you can see people picking it up with no sort of hobby game experience and being able to get it and understand it and how to play it. And 
that is definitely, I think, from my experience since it's been out, the kind of major role that it's had for me is that it's introduced new people to our hobby, if you like. Any game can do that. It's fantastic. There's been a number of people come down to London on board to say the first game they've played is Discworld. They started looking for it up online. They found BGG, and then here they are down to play some more games. So for what it is set out to do, it's done it fantastically. It is a game aimed at the mass market with gamey elements from from you know our kind of our sector of games if you like our snobby sector so well done martin wallace yeah i completely agree with you there i think you're going to go on now to judge it from a gamer's perspective but just for that kind of i don't know if it's the right wording as a gateway game for fans of Discworld to come into board games and i think it works the other way. I think it can also work as for fans of board games to get into Discworld novels. I think it recreates the feeling of the Discworld novels quite well. I'm not a big fan of the Terry Pratchett novels. There's some of the books I do like, but I'm not, I don't collect them. I haven't read all of them and I'm not a particularly massive fan of it, but I do think it works very well in recreating that whole atmosphere of Ankhmore Pork and this just crazy, wild city where things randomly happen to you. And I think that's what this game does. Yeah, I disagree, you see. I think that, for me, the appeal in Discworld is the sort of clever, arched eyebrow, sort of submersive twinge to, to his writing i think that yeah there's kind of these crazy fancy elements that are layered over the top and that there's funny things that happen and weird stuff but actually beneath it there's there's something a bit deeper going on all the time and the game doesn't capture that it's very superficial it's very very random while i say it's good that it got people into the the hobby look there's plenty of games that we think are gateway games or you know sort of casual games that you start people off with to see if they you know, kind of gateway drug them into the into the hobby that I, that I still enjoy playing i think there's plenty to learn and you can get better at them and there's different ways of exploring it and you can explore different ways of playing and you know if i'm playing one of those games with a group of people who are new maybe i'll i'll not play optimally to win or maybe i'll just start exploring other areas in it if you like but this game doesn't give me that. I don't think there's there's no way of getting better at it. There's not really much to explore. You get your role. That's what you're going to try and do. And either the cards are going to fall for you to let you do it or they're not. And then if they are falling for you, either the rest of the people who are playing, they're going to gang up on you and stop you or they're not. I don't feel like I've got any better at it over my plays. I don't feel like you can get any better at it. It's have I got the cards? Are you going to leave me alone long enough for me to win? See, I disagree. It's still a game that I enjoy, even though I sort of immersed myself into the board gaming world now. And it was one of the earlier games that I played, but I do still enjoy this game, and I do like the random element, and I usually don't. I'm usually all about, I hate the luck and that kind of element in a game, but for some reason I just like it in this game because the game sets out to sort of almost say to you you are going to be messed around you are going to be completely dependent on your cards and you are going to get completely scuppered by people and i think you have to almost adopt that sort of thought process that it's just a laugh rather than just go out to try and play it as a euro or whatever you want to liken it to but my problem with that, though, is if you're playing suboptimally, the person on your left is going to win. If you just take it, oh, it's a bit of a laugh, oh, let's just see what happens, oh, look, that random random event's come up and it's scuppered my last half an hour of planning to do something, oh, ha, 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 
you know, and, and you're not really concentrating on the ball position, then, like I say, whoever's on your left is going to win because first half hour you're all trying to do stuff. Then as soon as people start getting close to winning, your job becomes not to win, but to stop the person on your left from winning. That's all you're sitting there doing and going, it becomes a co-op where every person's turn, it's the other three against who you know, it's three against one, the next person. So, oh, look, look, if you don't do that, they're going to get their other building out. Or if you don't do that, they're going to take control of that. So you have to do that. So then you stop being able to make decisions on your turn. Your decision is all based on what someone else is doing all the time. It just becomes a circle of nonsense. First of all, I don't think that you, you need to play suboptimally to to enjoy this game. I think no, 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 no. My win. point was... It's you're saying it's just a fun, it's random, have a laugh, destroy your card and see what happens. If you play like that, the person to your left will win. You have to concentrate, you have to put energy in, you have to keep an eye on the whole game board, you have to make sure you're not letting anyone else run away with it. So it requires your concentration on what four people are doing and it throws a load of random crap at you. Absolutely. And yeah, it does require your concentration. I'm not saying completely ignore what's going on around you and just fling cards on the table. Ha ha. There you go. Have some of that. I just think that you've got to expect that you are going to be scuppered. And when you are scuppered, you come up with a new plan. You don't sell yourself too early. I think there's a lot of game chat in this game. I do think that there's a lot of interaction between the players because you're always saying, what's that person? I reckon he's got that. Now you could be sending them down you see a complete red herring because you're you're trying to take over areas, but actually you might have Lord Veterinary and then you're going to pull back at the end and scupper people. I think there's different ways to play this game, and I've definitely had games where I just didn't know what the person had until right at the end. So oh, if you can't tell what the other players have got by halfway through the game, you're just not concentrating. It's, it has to be obvious. Not necessarily. Not if they're selling you. You did it to us. You did it to uh, three other people. With uh, you had the one where you had to get all the trouble markers onto the board, but you were scuppering everybody, and it looked like you had the limes character, which I know we're going to talk about later, as in terms of so a lot of people take that character out of the game, and you played it very well. You you completely mystified us, and, and you played different strategies, and it looked that you were going down different paths. We eventually worked it out. But it was a little bit too late. I think there are things that you can employ in this game. And I think it's, it is a fun game that I do enjoy. I'm not saying it's the best game out there. I'm not saying that I would necessarily bring it out in certain company. But it's still a game that I enjoy. It's not awful. It's not a bad <laughs> game. It, it, it has an important sort of place. It has a role. I just don't particularly want to play it. It's I just don't find it very interesting. I think it just becomes a whole, like I said, a circle of you stop me, I stop you, you stop there, they stop, they stop, they stop, 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 stop. And as one of our friends says when we're playing games like that, it's not a co-op, people. This turns into a co-op. It turns into how do we stop them. And there's a bit of table chat and a bit of interaction as opposed to everyone deciding what's the optimal move each turn for each person. I just find it a bit boring. I've not found that at all. In the games that I've played, I've not really found that. I've found that there is interaction. It's fun interaction, but it's not a group decision. 
as to what your next turn is. Going back to the beginning, let's just talk about something that we haven't really talked about, and it's something that I do like to talk about, is their component quality and the standard of the design. I think this is a really nice game. It's a beautiful game. It's well-crafted. Everything in it is of a really high standard. And then you can go up to your collector's edition, which takes it up another notch, and the deluxe edition, which is one of the most stunning games I've ever seen created is absolutely beautiful. If it wasn't 90 to 120 pounds, I'd probably own it. What do you think of the quality of the design, Ronan? I, I think the, the cards are really nice. You know, you've got all the individual um, artwork for each card. I think you know, the wooden pieces and all that, they're all fine. I, I'm not that enamored with the board. I don't think it's particularly easy to see which district, what are joins what but it's it is up to a high standard there's no doubt about it and that's just with the you know the base edition it's a nice looking game it's again it's part of its appeal isn't it that people maybe are used to slightly shoddy components in games and you buy a game like that with all these nice wooden pieces decent artwork and and it, it does shine do you think that's more to do with tree frog stroke mayfair games or do you think it's because of the disc world license they got a bit more sort of money to create this do you think Oh no! I think Tree Frog generally make a, a, a nice component. So I think the people say that this game reminds them of London for some reason. I think a lot of that is to do with the components. They're quite similar. They're of a similar standard. Uh, Tree Frog generally make nice games. So one of the issues that I keep coming back to is that for me it becomes kind of a bit of a negative game that you're trying to stop each other from winning. It takes a lot of the creativity and positivity out of the game. But definitely one of the problems that I've come across again and again. And, and to the point whereby people around me who still play the game refuse to have them in the game, is that one of the characters is Commander Vimes. And Commander Vimes' win condition is that if all the cards in the deck run out and no one else has achieved their win condition, he wins. So his role is purely negative. There is nothing constructive for him to do. All he's got to do is sit there, and whoever's nearest to winning, do something to, to, to stop them. And... I, I don't mind a little bit of messing around with each other and what have you in the game. You know, Tammany Hall, I love. It's all about that. But for this, it's just too negative. And a game that already tips the balance for me over towards negative gameplay, having that character in there just makes it ridiculous because there's balance whereby if you have to achieve something positive, then you have to weigh up whether it's worth doing something negative and not doing your own, making your own achievement. A balance I think they got slightly wrong. But with Vimes... There is no balance. It's, well, I don't have to do anything other than stop you. Therefore, that's what I'm going to spend all game doing. It's too easy for him to do, and he just wins far, far too often. Yeah, on this one, I do actually agree with you. It is a very, very negative card, and it's counterproductive. It just gets that person just absolutely all over. You know what they've got straight from the off, and all they're doing is scuppering everybody else. So... Yeah, definitely house rule on that one. Take Commander Vimes out of your deck. Right, just to sum up then, as you can probably gather, I'm a bit of a fan of this game. It's not the greatest game in the world. I do enjoy it. I'm not as far probably down my gaming journey as Ronan is, and I do take on board everything he says about it. But I'm still a fan of this game. I still enjoy it. I still get a kick out of the various cards and the random effects coming up and the humor of the game is something i enjoy right it's a game that 
you know, I can respect from afar. I can see that they've set out to do something to to achieve a hobby esque game, which is able to the mass market. And I, like I say, I respect it. I just don't have any particular affection for it, and I wouldn't be too disappointed if I never had to play it again, to be honest. And there you go. That's Discworld Ankmore Pork by Martin Wallace via Terry Pratchett. Well, there you go. That's episode 12. Thank you very much for listening. And don't forget that you can catch all of our episodes on 2d6.org, along with a whole host of other gaming goodness. You can also catch us on Twitter at GamePitPodcast, or if you want to have a chat with us or get in contact with us, it's thegamepitpodcast at gmail.com. Thank you, and catch you next time. Theme by E. 